I think the deep problem, the deep macroeconomic problem that the world has today is that savings are exceeding the natural level of private investment, leading to sluggish growth and lack of inflation. That is the world's fundamental problem. And it is not a problem that central banks can on their own resolve. Hello, welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And that was The Economist, sometime Biden advisor and former US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. We have a world of economic wisdom and experience on the podcast this week, courtesy of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, which has just been held virtually over four days and multiple time zones. You'll get a sense of just how star-studded it was when I tell you the head of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, spoke on the second day and she wasn't even the headline act. Top of the bill was the Indian president, Narendra Modi. On day three, it was the president of the European Commission, and after that, Bill Gates. I didn't talk to any of them, but I did get to talk to the Irish Prime Minister, or Taoiseach, Michal Martin, about Brexit, the future of global trade, and where Joe Biden's Irish grandparents came from. You can hear some of that later, but we're going to devote most of the programme to a debate about central banks with not one, not two, but three former central bank governors. The ex-Federal Reserve Chair, Janet Yellen, the economist and former head of the Indian Central Bank, Raghuram Rajan, and Lord Mervyn King, Governor of the Bank of England, from 2003 until 2013. Oh yes, and Larry Summers. If you don't want to hear those four economic rock stars talk about the economic response to COVID and how central banks might do a better job of serving the whole economy, not just Wall Street, you should probably turn off now. But the rest of you, sit back and enjoy the show. spend a few minutes very briefly thinking about how central banks have responded to the pandemic, what's gone right, and maybe what needs to change. Janet Yellen. Well, I think central banks of the developed countries have done a very good job of responding to the crisis. There could have been a financial market meltdown. There was an overwhelming rush to the safety of cash in March it threatened massive asset fire sales, which could have caused credit to dry up in the economy. And the Fed and other central banks erected emergency liquidity and lending facilities that have really worked and kept credit uh, flowing in the economy. Monetary policy in all the major central banks also became far more accommodative lower policy rates, expanded asset purchases, forward guidance. In the U.S., both long and short-term interest rates are near historic lows, and they work to boost interest-sensitive sectors. And even here, you can see stronger housing and auto sales. But monetary policy has its limits, and the notion that the Fed can do all that is required at this point to support the economy um, is just wrong. And the Fed is really pleading for fiscal relief. I believe it's essential. 
Lord King, I know you've been you've uh, echoed uh, some of what Janet Yellen has said in, in repeatedly saying central banks can't do everything. Do you think they've, they've played the expectations game well in this in responding to the crisis or have they set them too high? So I share much of what Janet has said, but I think to explain what's gone wrong, I don't think central banks have explained clearly why expanding the money supply is the right sort of response to a shutdown of the economy created by governments, different levels of governments, in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19. This isn't a conventional recession. And, and as Janet said, the most important thing for central banks to do now is to say that this is a, a difficulty, a challenge, which needs government response, not central bank response. And I don't think it's government response in the sense of general fiscal easing. I think it's a response that's required to support businesses until we get through this COVID-19 episode, at which point we can then let the market economy decide which businesses will thrive and which will fail, which I don't think we can do at present. And I think that although the actions taken in March were clearly very important and central banks acted very promptly, it does beg the question that since markets have now calmed down, why that very significant liquidity injection hasn't been withdrawn. And I think what's needed is a proper narrative now to explain why these circumstances merit particular central bank responses. I think we have to get away from the idea that if anything goes wrong, then central banks have to step in and throw money at the problem. Raghuram Rajan, if you want to respond to what, what Lord King has said, but I'm also wondering how emerging market central banks, you would say, have responded and, and m matched that, that challenge that, that Mervyn has outlined. Well, uh, Janet talked about the advanced country central banks have done having done a fantastic job. And I think this did help many emerging markets, which were subject to the same kind of stress that you saw in the beginning of the crisis in March. And uh, the accommodative policies of the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of Japan helped uh, alleviate some of that EM stress. Also, emerging markets have uh, adopted some of the tools from the Industrial Country Central Bank uh, toolkit uh, to help their governments uh, do the spending, which, as Mervyn said, is extremely important to ensure the real economy doesn't collapse, that you, you maintain the body economic uh, by helping small and medium enterprises and helping households. That requires spending, and central banks uh, in Indonesia, Poland, uh, across the emerging world have supported their governments. The key question now, of course, is how do you sort of ensure that that bridge, which was built to the end of the virus, it actually extends that far, and there are fears in industrial countries it may be too short. And emerging markets didn't build a pretty strong bid, uh, bridge in the first place because they had very limited resources. And that means that there is far more stress which has built up within the system, which has been hidden by moratoria, by payment uh, uh, sort of postponements, and that stress has to be dealt with. This is not a central bank problem. This is a problem of fixing the judicial system so that it can alleviate stress, fixing the uh, you know debt renegotiation system. And again, I, I'll end by saying so far it's been very good. But whenever you get into these kinds of policies, exit is often a great issue. How do we exit without tanking the system once again? And I, it's too early to start thinking about uh, 
about it, but it is a question which will face us down the line. Larry Summers, let's take it as well. If we take from the other three speakers, quite a lot has gone right in the major central bank's response, but what would you have done differently? The big thing was preventing a financial collapse. The central banks acted definitively to do that. That's all that was ultimately historically important. The mistake is for them to vastly exaggerate their continuing relevance. They lack, starting at the zero bound where we are, the capacity to provide meaningful impetus to their economies in any way that is consistent with any concept of central bank functioning. They do not have the capacity to meaningfully affect the degree of inequality. They do not have the capacity to vaccinate people. They do not have the capacity to fight uh, climate uh, change. And they need to acknowledge the limitations of their influence in a clear way so there can be no pretending about what they're going to do and that the authorities have the responsibilities they do. The central banks have also, in my view, not put adequate emphasis on the global dimensions of this problem. A striking feature of the contrast between this crisis and the last crisis is that the last crisis had a major response from the IMF, issuance of SDRs, big increases in lending from the World Bank that was driven by the global community. There has been no boldness at the global level comparable to the boldness at the national level. And that could get us in real trouble uh, down the road, as Raghu uh, points out. And frankly, the central bankers, because they want to curry domestic political favor in each country, have not had enough to say about that. Just to come back on that, uh, you talk about a lack of boldness. I mean, Larry Summers, you've proposed uh, as one of the things that could happen to support the global system, a big new issuance of IMF special drawing rights, SDRs. We have to ask you, have you persuaded uh, incoming uh, President uh, Joe well, Biden of speak, that yet? I'll speak for themselves. I'm optimistic that the, the U.S. will not be the kind of block on that proposal that it has been before. And of course, it's possible to do substantial things, issuances of $500 billion without uh, congressional approval. So I'm optimistic that we'll see progress uh, on that. But I think that unlike the central bankers of an earlier era, you have seen much less discussion in the central banking uh, community of the global imperative, uh, particularly the challenges necessary if emerging markets are to avoid a wave of financial crises going forward, the issues associated with uh, debt relief. And I think that's been unfortunate. And I have to say, I think it's been because the central banks have been excessively focused with their domestic politics, which leads them to talk about subjects like small business, like the environment, which are really not basically within their proper remit. Janet Yellen, do you agree that, that maybe the Fed shouldn't be talking about needing to target uh, the difference between black and white unemployment rates, for example, as it did in this summer, 
and shouldn't be engaging on this broader agenda's climate change. So the Fed has always operated under a dual mandate. It's inflation and maximum employment. And in this environment of very low inflation, too low inflation, there's really no conflict whatever between these two goals. And the Fed is really focused on trying to create a very strong job market. And I think that they have made that clear. I'm not sure everyone in the public on Main Street understands that, but full employment is a goal that they ought to pursue. Um, I agree with Larry that the effective lower bound is a big constraint. At this point, they're doing almost all they can do. They need fiscal policy to help. But um, when they talk about inequality and the disproportionate burdens on minority workers, what they can do is to try to pursue the strongest possible job market. Because when they're successful at that, as they were um, prior to the pandemic with unemployment at um, a 50-year low at 3.5%, that brings benefits particularly to less skilled and minority workers. When job markets are really tight, we saw wages rising most rapidly at the bottom of the wage distribution, um, workers being pulled off to the off from the sidelines, coming back into the labor market, firms finding it incredibly difficult to hire, lowering qualifications, engaging in their own training to bring people up to speed, um, willing to hire people that with a weak labor market, their resumes would have ended, wouldn't have been looked at at all. And the, the Fed has recently revised its framework um, for conducting monetary policy and emphasized that full employment is a broad and inclusive goal. And they've changed their operating strategy to, uh, and because of the importance of the effective lower bound, to pursue that with vigor. And I think that's appropriate, and I think it's the strongest um, contribution that central banks uh, can make to um, trying to deal with inequality. They don't have other tools. Janet, can I just see whether we're in agreement? I am 100% in agreement with you on the absolute importance of maximizing employment in the current context when there's no real danger of getting inflation to an excessive uh, level. I am in 100% agreement with you that maximizing employment is the best social program of all and confers all sorts of benefits. But don't we think that central banks really need to be careful about holding out the idea that they are relevant to sectoral issues involving differentials between one sector and another, or structural issues like environmental protection? Would you agree, for example, that any idea that the Fed should make special efforts to buy green bonds is a confusion? So um, I don't think I've never heard the Fed say that they're trying to target the unemployment rates or situations of any particular group. In a tight labor market, the gaps, I think, between um, 
For example, the unemployment rates of minorities and whites tends to narrow. I, I don't think there's anything they can do on that front uh, beyond a generally strong labor market. So it would be a mistake, I think, to say we're targeting the unemployment rate of any particular group. And on sustainable um, goals, I, I think it does make sense for in supervision to be taking the risks from climate change, both climate related risks and the risks of changes in prices um, and stranded assets as uh, countries adopt meaningful climate policy to consider that as a risk to banking organizations and to do stress tests to look at that. But of course, we need public policy oriented toward making a big difference on climate change. And I agree with you, that is not something central banks can be asked to accomplish. Mervyn King, we remember the title of this is about Main Street or Wall Street. Uh, given what, what Larry has said, do you think that central banks or the Bank of England or other central banks have done enough to show that they're supporting Main Street, not just Wall Street? Do you worry about the fact that they are perceived to be propping up asset prices as a main tool of policy at the moment? Well, I am concerned that uh, the fact that the narrative about why monetary easing has been so strong in these particular circumstances, that narrative hasn't been made clear. So it's not surprising that some people have gone away with the impression that the objective of central banks is to support asset prices. I don't think that is their objective, but I think one can see why some people might think it. I think Janet is very compelling in arguing that the dual mandate for the Fed allows the Fed to pursue strategies that will maximize employment. And it's reasonable to argue and to explain why that strategy will have benefits for wider constituencies in the country, not just the aggregate, but individual groups will benefit too. Larry Summers, the response to this great need, the popular need to, to show that the policy is more inclusive, that globalization could be more inclusive, and to the long list of things that you said that central banks are impotent about could be just to say central banks' main role now is just to make large-scale fiscal action affordable, just as they effectively have this year by keeping rates low, making it possible for governments to borrow. Should they just recognise that that is their main role at this point? I wouldn't put it that way. I would put it that their main role is to support stable, non-inflationary economic growth. And I think for the foreseeable future, that's likely to involve keeping interest rates at very low levels. I think the deep problem, the deep macroeconomic problem that the world has today is that savings are exceeding the natural level of private investment. Putting downwards pressure on interest rates to near zero real interest rate or below uh, levels and leading to sluggish growth and lack of inflation. And that is the world's fundamental problem. And it is not a problem that central banks can on their own resolve. It is a problem that central banks can acknowledge, as Janet certainly uh, has in, her period, in the period after she left office in very strong and clear ways as the evidence has become uh, clearer. But they need to point up this as a problem 
recognize that it has important implications for fiscal policy, that it has important implications for the ways in which governments manage their debts, and that they are prepared uh, to uh, do their part. It doesn't necessarily mean explosions in debt, but it does mean careful thought about a range of fiscal and structural policies. But we do need to recognize that whereas from the period from the late 1970s until the early 2000s, the central macroeconomic problems were the temptation to inflate and the crowding out of private investment by budget deficits. Today, the central problem is absorbing all the savings in a healthy way so that we have strong economic growth and we don't have huge leverage and huge financial bubbles. And that is a fundamentally different macroeconomic problem that calls for fundamentally different macroeconomic strategies of which there may be a role for inflation targeting, but it is largely beside the point in a world where the real problem is insufficient price inflation and excessive asset price inflation. And we need to adjust central banks' paradigm to take account of uh, those realities. Look, if I can say one more uh, thing, the world's financial leaders said after Dodd-Frank was passed, after the Financial Stability Forum uh, did all its things, that we now had a much healthier financial system that could continue to function without large-scale bailouts. Less than five years after that was definitively proclaimed, We've had the biggest set of actions directed at propping up the financial system in uh, global history. And while it's looking okay right now, as Raghu said, we're not sure that even what we've done is going to be enough to hold. That suggests the need for a great deal of fundamental rethinking. Janet Yellen, what, what's your response to what, to what Larry was just saying? Well, I agree very much with Larry. I think he gave an excellent description of what the core problem is that the developed world faces, that there is a glut of saving and a shortage of investment. And that's why the effect of lower bound is such an important constraint. And it's what really means that we have to have fiscal policy, structural policy, and things other than just relying on central banks um, to uh, keep uh, healthy growth with low inflation. Um, I, I think central banks need to do what they can, but then not overstate um, what it's possible for them to do. Uh, the Fed has recently concluded a strategic policy review and made adjustments to um, its monetary policy strategy, um, adopting a system called flexible average inflation targeting. I think this is an appropriate change. It somewhat improves the scope for monetary policy to support the economy when short-term interest rates um, are often constrained by the effect of lower bound I think it's helpful in preventing a cycle of falling inflation, feeding falling inflation expectations. But, well, I strongly believe central banks 
need to be independent and need to do everything they can. The changes they've made, they're not a game changer from the point of view of secular stagnation. And bottom line, I agree with Larry on what's what's required. You talked a lot about the importance of fiscal policy at this moment. I have to ask you, would you like to be more closely involved in that uh, as a treasury, treasury secretary for the new administration? I don't have anything for you on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't think you'd be a good treasury secretary. Could I ask you that? I could probably ask the rest of the panel that. It's for other people to decide, I think. Yeah, uh, she would be a great Treasury Secretary. But let, let me talk about uh, uh, another issue, which is uh, related to Larry's secular stagnation idea. I mean, in, in some sense, uh, the hope for the world was that fast-growing emerging markets and developing countries would provide that demand, which sorely seems uh, lacking at the aggregate level. One of the big concerns we should have with this pandemic is how much scarring has gone on in those economies because they haven't had the ability to provide the kind of fiscal as well as credit support that industrial countries have. So my worry is, apart from the uh, North Asian economies, which seem to have come out quite well from this crisis, many countries in Latin America, Africa, South Asia are going to suffer some uh, diminishing in growth potential going forward coupled with some of the impediments to trade that we see, I think this is a cause for concern for the global economy and something that we should do very much, uh, work very hard over the next few years to try and reverse. Uh, and that's where uh, Larry's call for global uh, sort of leadership, I think, makes a huge, uh, is, is of huge importance. We all talk about cooperating with China on the most important global issues. There needs to be cooperation with China on the whole set of issues around support uh, for uh, emerging markets. If central banks could explain, not that they can do it, but that ultimately the financial stability of all the institutions they're responsible for, the financial stability of their economies depends much more urgently on achieving successful global cooperation than it does on anything else. If they could make that case, they would be making a much greater contribution to the current global moment than they currently are. I agree with Mervyn, but I think the world looks to the central banking community to explain the nature of the macroeconomic challenges before it even if the central banks themselves lack the tools to deal with it. And if the central banking community can explain, as Janet uh, just did, as I tried to um, a little bit in talking about the absorption of saving problem, if that problem can be laid out clearly, that is the first step. It's not doesn't solve it to lay it out clearly, but it's a crucial step towards the whole range of measures, and you're absolutely right, Mervyn, that it involves a million different things that are necessary to resolve it. But first, we need to define that problem, and that's something central banks can surely do. Lord Mervyn King, Raghuram Rajan, Janet Yellen and Larry Summers, thank you very much. We could end the podcast there, but I wanted to give you a short taste of my conversation with the Irish Taoiseach, or Prime Minister, Michal Martin. He'd recently had a warm phone conversation with President-elect Joe Biden, and I couldn't resist asking him about that. 
But come January 1st, the UK will no longer be trading on the rules it had while it was inside the European Union. It will be fully out. And with six weeks to go, we still don't know what comes next. We do know that Ireland is stuck in the middle and has a huge stake in what happens. I started by asking him whether he thought these last-minute negotiations were going to produce a deal. I would still hope there will be a comprehensive trade deal, but it will be challenging. My sense of if there's a political will in the United Kingdom to get a Brexit deal done, then it will happen. I think the European Union want a deal. Uh, of that, I'm clear. Uh, not at the past, but it's our view, and it's Ireland's view as a member state, that it, it, is, it is in the interest of our citizens uh, and the respective economies to get a deal that makes sense. And no deal would be very damaging our respective economies. Logic dictates we should we, do, we should do everything we possibly can to get a deal. It's a responsible thing as politicians to do on behalf of the citizens that we represent. But we now have an incoming US president who's made very clear his views on the Good Friday Agreement and the importance of there not being um, a hard border uh, between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland. Do you think that changes the calculus? Do you think that makes it more likely that Boris Johnson would compromise with the EU? I think it's it's helped. I, mean, I spoke to Joe Biden um, during the week. Very warm, uh, clearly very proud of his Irish heritage, and has make, makes no secret of that. And we're looking forward to his presidency, to be frank, from that perspective. But I think the more broader issue is the prospects of a Biden presidency being more multilateral in its, its thrust and its and its impulse. That was clear from my conversation with the president-elect that he was going to engage with Europe. Now, that could, it, that's probably more significant in terms of the impact on the UK's response, because it seems to me that the United Kingdom values its relationship with the United States and vice versa. I think President Biden-elect would too. Uh, and so therefore, I think the US, the new presidency would prefer a deal uh, between Europe and the UK. I think the UK is conscious of that. Um, and the, the, the president-elect is very committed to climate change. I think Boris Johnson would like him in Glasgow, for example, for the COP. So I, I can see an alignment of, of interests here um, sparked by the president's commitment to multilateralism and to resetting, if you like, the sets of relationships between the US and Europe that might be better that, uh, or might enhance the prospects of a deal. We should broaden it out a bit. I mean, you, you say itself, it's going to be a shock when we, uh, even if you had a deal, it's a big change from what we had before. And the deal itself is not like is likely to be quite thin compared to what might have been expected. If we're thinking about global cooperation and inspiring more uh, negotiation on trade globally, I mean, are, are there any positive lessons from this negotiation for the rest of the world or all the, are they all negative? I think the, the, the important lesson is don't engage in any sort of um, uh, knee-jerk reactions to anything and don't start announcing things or doing things without adequate preparation in advance. I mean, these are very, very weighty issues. They're complex. They have a lot of unintended consequences. Um, and they affect people's lives and livelihoods fairly significantly, as we know. What I would hope with the, the, the election of President Biden as well is that we would move to uh, a more open trading uh, perspective. Um, and I think, you know, I, we're all perplexed at times as to why the UK would decide to leave uh, one of the largest trading blocks in, in, in the world, uh, which has brought about significant economic advancement for all of our economies in Europe. Um, so I think there are lessons to be learned in terms of the basic principles that, mo that really uh, power an economy. 
And I think we, we need to be very conscious of that and, and reverse any move towards protectionism and move towards an open trading um, environment. Uh, obviously, we've had a, a second wave of COVID coming across Europe in the last couple of months. Our own high frequency indicators of the economy show that that is causing a double dip in many economies in terms of activity. Uh, how hopeful are you that it, we can have a faster recovery this time around and maybe even still see that V-shaped recovery that people have talked about? I think the success or otherwise of vaccines is going to be a very important story for 2021. Um, and from the Irish perspective, we, we, we moved early on the second wave. So we're, I think, the second lowest incidence in Europe now. We're doing very well uh, in terms of a downward trajectory of cases, downward numbers in hospital and, and ICUs. I think in the early part of 2021, depending on the efficacy of vaccines as they emerge, I think the by the middle of 2021, it could be better than we might have um, anticipated. Um, and uh, But I think we're, we're, we're learning a lot more about the virus. That will inform how we exit this level five of restrictions and how long we can protect livelihoods as well as lives, and that's important, and to get people back working again in certain sectors. Travel, tourism, aviation, hospitality, those are the sectors that have been, that, that have been hardest hit. Uh, we believe other sectors can come back much more strongly, more quickly. And uh, finally, just to go back to President Biden, you said yourself, he's one of the presidents, uh, who, American presidents, who is uh, long boasted of his Irish roots. Do you think it's possible that uh, the Irish, the special relationship that America has with a European country will be with Ireland under President Biden, not the UK. Well, I think he, he values his relationship with the UK, but there's no question from my conversation last week, uh, he loves Ireland. He's very proud of his Irish heritage. Even in our conversation, we spoke about his, his great grandparents and his grandparents' home in County Louth and in, in Mayo. Uh, and I said to him, look, we'd like to see you in Ireland. And he said, you're not going to be able to stop me from coming. Michael Martin, thank you very much. You're very welcome indeed. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on the ground reporting and analysis on anything we think you might want to hear about. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, you should follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Tishok Michal Martin, Larry Summers, Raghuram Rajan, Janet Yellen, Lord Mervyn King and Cat Glass. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.